Warning, this podcast is an exploration of the physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, chemical, social, historical, and economic aspects of one person's life of addiction. Stories often contain graphic descriptions of drug use, violence, and self-harm. They also contain examples of tremendous change, optimism, and hope. This is Season Sobriety. In this episode of Season Sobriety, I spoke with John Colopy, owner of Remax Results, the largest Remax real estate franchise in the world. John shared his story of growing up in an abusive and alcoholic family and the path that put him on until hitting rock bottom in 1975. Now, after 43 years of sobriety, he's written an amazing book titled The Reward of Knowing, in which he details both his own personal struggles and the steps he's taken to not just achieving sobriety, but truly living a big life of peace, serenity, and contribution. I hope you enjoy. Results franchise. It is the biggest Remax franchise in the world. Is that correct? That's correct. Well, congratulations. Thank so, you. Um, John was kind enough to, uh, we met sort of through a mutual acquaintance and uh, reached out to me uh, when someone said, hey, Dan's uh, trying to get this little podcast off the ground to talk about sobriety and, and helping people get sober. So thank you so much for reaching out. And, um, you know, the floor is kind of yours. I wanted to talk to you uh, we'll get to it in a little bit, but you wrote a book that you were kind enough to send to me as well. And um, so I kind of wanted to talk, you know, it, you made it clear that you've been in recovery for a long, long time and have had a pretty successful life, not just a successful career, but a very successful life. And I would love to kind of hear about um, your background and how you got sober and how you maintain that sobriety. So um, maybe just tell us a little bit about your background and where you're from. The way you phrase that, I could write another book on uh, those questions you just asked. So uh, I grew up in northeast Minneapolis, and uh, I grew up in a fairly typical uh, household uh, in the community that I grew up in. Uh, alcohol use was very common, and the philosophy would be if you can go to work on Monday, you don't have a drinking problem. Mm-hmm and uh, what your interaction or behavior was like on the weekend with your family uh, wasn't as important as you going back to work on a Monday morning. So I grew up in a blue-collar ethnic community, and uh, I had aspirations that were very modest. I just wanted to survive my teenage years. Um, Started drinking when I was 13, Uh, started doing drugs when I was 15 and uh, as anybody knows who has had similar life experience 
that is not the road to success uh, when you do that. And uh, so I had many years of volatility and unusual behavior, uh, some of which, of course, as we all know, was incredibly fun and others of it uh, pretty stupid and some of it just flat out painful. Uh, and so I struggled through high school, dropped out, went back, uh, didn't live at home when I was 16, had a full-time job, you know, really a, a non-typical adolescent lifestyle. Um, and the alcohol drug community was where I was plugged into and, you know, my buddies did it, I did it and we we're all nuts. Um, sometimes, as I suggested, really fun, other times uh, causing problems. <clears throat> and so I kept that lifestyle up. I was unable to transition into any degree of normalcy. Uh, sometimes I had a job, sometimes I didn't. Uh, but eventually, uh, I had received a number of DWIs and uh, my third one uh, was a big problem since I did not have a driver's license and I got arrested for drunken, drunken driving and careless driving. And then because I was such a well-mannered, stable individual, uh, I beat the cop up. <laughs> and so I got in a fight with him and I broke his arm. And, and so I was really in a lot of trouble uh, nowadays, that same crime absolutely would have got me into Stillwater. Uh, my attorney back then, uh, great man, Don Heffernan, uh, says, let me explain to you how this is going to go. Number one, you're going to jail. Number two, you're going to treatment. Number three, I'll get you out of the felony. Let's do it again. Jail, treatment, no prison. You want more than that, go get another, and you can imagine the word he used to describe, go get another lawyer. And uh, I said, you know what, that's a pretty good deal. I'll take it. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was 23 at the time. I went to the workhouse for 90 days, and uh, then after my time in the workhouse, which they let me out a little early to go to treatment, uh, I went to drug and alcohol treatment at uh, the county facility and there was something about it and there was something about the trouble I was in where I really did feel like it was time to quit drinking. The night that I got arrested and the next day when I was released from jail on bail to my friends, I was sitting in a restaurant in downtown St. Paul, the Perkins, and uh, I had a broken nose and a couple broken ribs from when the police returned my attentions, and uh, I didn't feel very good, and I knew I was in big trouble, and, and those of you who have heard this term in AA, I had my moment of clarity. And uh, that day I knew my drinking days were behind me and that I had to find a new way to lead life because this wasn't working. And so I did have that feeling going into jail and treatment. 
and when I got out of jail, I was, excuse me, when I got out of jail and treatment, I was as befuddled as anybody is who's struggling with chemical dependency. But I was pretty sure I didn't want to be a homeless bum going in and out of jail. Uh, and so I was fortunate enough to eventually find a job. Uh, and I remember there's a big story about this, if you ever read my book, about how funny it was because my first job was minimum wage. And uh, I started having some emotional and lifestyle successes with sobriety. I don't mean it was easy. I just mean it was better. And throughout my life, I couldn't be happier. And when I reflect on those distant past of drug and alcohol use, I'm literally befuddled at the misery I put myself through with some underlining theme that this was fun, cool, or felt good. And uh, boy, the longer I've been sober, the better I feel, the more I get in touch with what I am and what I want and how I can help. And uh, I, I couldn't be more grateful for uh, being incarcerated in treatment and in the commitment that those different programs helped me through in the many, many, many years of uh, AA where I've had some support and guidance and just somebody to talk to. Uh, I, I, I couldn't be happier with sobriety. What it's done for me is so amazing. And, and uh, the quality of life I have, and I'm not just talking about business success, financial success. I'm talking about my wife, my cat, my kids, my grandkids. I'm talking about the big picture, and just none of this would be here uh, if I hadn't sobered up. I'd have been dead, I'd have to say, 15 years ago, I probably would have croaked. And uh, I'm pretty happy right now. And if that isn't a positive commercial for sobriety, I don't know how else I can give you one. <laughs> and how long ago was that? How long have you been 1975, sober? 1975, I sobered up. Wow. Yeah. That's a pretty good run. Have there been times in that, you know, in that, what, 43 years now? Mm -hmm. Have there been, uh, it sounds like no slip-ups if, you know, it's been since 1975. Have you had some times where it was on the brain or you thought you might go back? <coughs> well, the only odd part was when I first got out and I I felt obligated to try to hang around with my friends still. And so for a period of time, X amount of months, I would go to the bars and have a Coke. And then there was one Friday night where I said, that is so miserable, I'm staying home. And uh, so the lifestyle adjustment being able to be comfortable not hanging out with the guys who are drinking and snorting coke that took a little bit of effort for a while but eventually I was so much happier with the person I was becoming uh, that I, I didn't really feel any compulsion to hang out or be around or do any of that and then later in life I was able to reconnect with those people because I was more confident in my sobriety and I might not go out with them on a Friday night, but maybe we go to a football game on a Sunday. And so I kind of came up with my own rules after a while of interaction and what I felt comfortable with. 
but my life got better and we all experience questions about what's going to happen going forward but as soon as I would stop thinking that way and concentrate on the day you know let's face it the day at the day at a time is one of the greatest things that I've ever learned uh, I, I really haven't had any relapses uh, as I said my life got better consistently to a point where I, I can't even imagine who the John was that, that would have done that that many years ago. So I've been very fortunate uh, to have some sobriety to build on, and uh, sobriety worked for me. I'm, I'm a lucky man, and I know it. Beautiful. You, you mentioned that you kind of came up with some of your own rules. Tell me a little bit more about that. Did you... Did you um, was that a specific thing or something that you really adhered to? Or when you say that, do you just kind of mean, you, you know, you did it your own way? Well, you know, my counselor would say, you know, don't go hang around with your friends at the bars. That's stupid. And I'd say, I don't care what you say, I'm going to go do it. And so I went and did it and said, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that anymore. But I had to come to those decisions on my own. Uh, I had to make... Uh, some things that weren't exactly programmatic in their approach, uh, but they weren't detrimental either. I just was a little bit stubborn. Uh, I, it, it later on, and, and this is a fairly common thing with, with uh, addicts, is I also suffered from depression, and so that was a bit of a battle, but you can't deal with your depression until you get your sobriety squared away. And, and I had anxiety and depression and some other issues like that that I refer to as adult mental health issues. But you, you can't work on the crazy if you're still drunk. And so first I had to sober up. I had to get comfortable in my sobriety. Then I could start addressing uh, mental health issues or behavior issues that were keeping me from having the personal satisfaction that has always been my goal. I see. Um you talked about a couple things right there that um, I think this would be a good time to bring up the fact that you did write a book about your, you know, your life story, your past. Uh, I read it. It was dynamite, and I read it again. And um, I've got a few dog-eared pages and a few passages that I, uh, you know, that I highlighted and I've gone back to and thought about a little bit. Um, if you don't mind, I was going to bring up a couple of those. And Please. And they kind of resonate again with kind of what you just said. One thing you said was, you know, regardless, you have to quit drinking first and foremost, but it sort of, uh, uh, you know, brought up that basically there's a difference between uh, not drinking and being sober. It's, uh, I don't know if that's an AAism or anything like that, but you can quit drinking, but you might just be white knuckling it and holding on. You've got to kind of get to the root of what the real issues are. Um, <coughs> But another one, uh, or so one uh, that kind of resonates for me on um, page 34 of your book, uh, you said, and you just talked about it, but you said, addicts can be analyzed, counseled, reasoned with, prayed over, threatened, beaten, or locked up, but they won't stop until they want to stop. And that, you know, basically hit it on the head what you just said, even if you're your counselor, everybody you know, everybody that's important to you is telling you to do something. It's kind of got to be your own idea. There's a gentleman I met 
who works uh, at Harbor Light Salvation Army in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, and it's a very unique place. And uh, this guy helps place people. He gets them off the street, gets them stabilized, finds them jobs, and helps them get their own apartments so they get back out into the real world. And uh, he was a homeless guy for many, 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 many years. And he estimated that he had been through treatment over 20 times. Hmm. And the reason was that it was part of the jail sentencing. He was being forced to do it. You know, if you're sleeping outside in the winter, uh, a bed in a treatment center is, is, is a little bit nicer than underneath the bridge. And finally he got sick of the revolving door and wanted to quit. And then he quit. 20 times in treatment did not make him want to quit. Hmm. He had to internalize it, and he had to have, and this is an AA term when, you know, everybody has a different bottom. Mm -hmm. And sleeping under the bridge wasn't his bottom. Going through treatment 20 times, that was his bottom. He just had enough of it and quit. And so I got into the dilemma with the police officer in violence and that was my bottom I was scared I did not want this lifestyle I did not want to be that kind of person I I didn't think I was uh, tough enough to be in prison I just didn't I didn't want that but it was clearly where I was going and so I do think there's an interesting point I have a, a, a person that I work with who had a drinking problem whether he was an alcoholic or not, I don't know. You know, it's not for me to judge. But he just decided, this is dumb. I don't like not feeling good the next day. doesn't help me with my wife, my kids, my job, my faith. So he quit drinking. He didn't have to go through treatment 20 times. He came to a conclusion much different than myself or the other gentleman did. But to him, that was his bottom. And so we all have a different point in life if you're chemically dependent where you're finally going to make that decision. Uh, and so that's what, what you were reading. That's what I was referencing is it's, it's up to you. you got to want to quit. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make any difference how much everybody else wants you to or how illogical it is that you're going to keep doing it. You, you, you really have to want it. Right. Before you had the incident with the police officer, had quitting drinking been on your mind at all or was no. the, the incident just like oh my god here's what here's here's what i thought of in my late teens and early 20s i'm a bum i'm gonna be a bum eventually i'm gonna go back to california because it's better to be a bum in california <laughs> and uh i'll just lead this lower life of you know panhandling and working once in a while and staying high and, and I thought that was because I wasn't dumb. I could see what I, my lifestyle was like, and I thought that's where it was ending. And uh, I didn't have any momentum to quit. Um, and so I, I just thought I was going to be a loser and then eventually wear out and, you know, be living in the homeless shelter like I described down at the Salvation Army. That's what I thought I was headed for. But uh, that conflict 
uh, allowed me to see things differently, and I decided to quit. Hmm. How did you decide to write a book? Oh, goodness. Uh, I've always wanted to. Uh, I used to do some writing when I was younger, and then it, it went away when I was in business. And then uh, I, I had a business arrangement with a gentleman where I thought he was going to buy me out of my business and I was going to retire and then I was going to write the book. But when I ended up buying him out, and it's clear I wasn't going to be retiring for a while, I just said, well, you better quit fooling around and write the darn book. And so it's always been in me. Uh, it's not the last one I'll ever write. Uh, I do enjoy that. Uh, it's just a part of me that's always been there, but uh, there hasn't been the dedication or the time allocated to it. And now I just figured out that if I write three pages every day, the book gets written. Did You said you'd always wanted to write. Did you always want to write essentially your life story? And no, 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 no. I... I, I, when I was younger, it would have been more fiction-oriented. Hmm. I would have wrote something. Uh, I've got some outlines of different things I've done, and it, and it would have been more dramatic, uh, more cosmic, more shocking. Uh, I would want it to sound like a true story, but it really wouldn't have been a true story. So this is just heartfelt things. Um, the greatest gift of the book is when people tell me they read it and it meant something or they read it and they gave it to a family member. Uh, giving back has been important to me for a long time and if this book touches one person or makes one person reflective enough to change behavior then it is one of the best books ever written and uh, that's my hope, is that it touches people. I've read it, and uh, I probably should have introduced it a little bit more. Tell us a little bit about, um, tell us about the book and the structure of it and uh, kind of where things go from there with your writing. Oh, goodness, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's just a book about the unusual lifestyle I had growing up and how difficult we all have. We all have issues with our parents and uh, you know generally if you look at any emotional problem I've been in therapy for a lot of years and uh, owe my therapist Dr. Mark uh, a lot of gratitude but most of what makes us crazy either happened because of your mom or your dad I mean that's just the way it is you're six seven eight years old and that's how you become a human being and you observe things or are treated in a way or not treated in a way and it and it really forms you. And so my childhood experiences caused me difficulty and uh, they helped me become delinquent. There's a line in the book that I'm amused by where I said the two things I hated about my dad the most were he was a violent, is that he was a violent alcoholic and at age 14 I was already a violent alcoholic and so uh, I find that to be one of the most peculiar ways for human beings to behave, to dislike behavior that you observe, but yet you turn to that behavior. And it, it's so common uh, with kids uh, that, that we all know many, many cases of it. Maybe some of the people even listening have had that experience. 
And so it's, it's uh, uh, just a, a part of life that growing up isn't that easy and that a lot of our parents uh, didn't have a lot of skills. My dad didn't get up in the morning and go, you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to screw my son up and make him nuts. No, he, 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 he cared for me. He loved me. He wanted the best, but he had an alcohol problem, and, and that just conflicted with what he wanted, and, you know, just not that a coincidence, his dad had an alcohol problem, and it's just, it's just a tough cycle. And so the book is really just the path through my life uh, and some of the things I've observed that have helped me and what I want people to do when they read the book is be introspective and stop blaming other people for their current status or problems in life that regardless how difficult it was growing up, you are now in control. And if you apply the right amount of information and attitude, you can do anything you want. And I, I really do believe that. You said you've been in, in therapy for a long, long time in the mm -hmm. book. Uh, the book certainly talks about it as well. Did you find it therapeutic or cathartic to write this book? Did it did it feel like a sense of relief when you no. did it? No. Um, this is this is a funny one. I love the book. Like I say, the joy from the book is that it's having impact on other people's life. Uh, the funniest thing about completing the book was that it seemed awful anticlimactic to me. It's like. I thought this is going to be a big deal if I wrote a book. <laughs> well, it's not a big deal, but it's a good deal because it does good things. And so I, I really didn't have those kind of traumas or introspection while doing the book. Uh, it's just a story, and it flowed, and I like writing. That's great. Do you, um, you said you, you know, you've referenced AA a couple of times. Yeah. It, and it sounds like it was fairly pivotal, at least in the early stages of very much so. Do you still are, are you still going to AA? I I am not a regular person who attends meetings. As odd as it sounds, I speak at meetings. Uh, other people who I've come across in my business life asked me if I'd come and tell my story at an AA meeting, and I'd love to. I am not a member in a group. Uh, I have replaced that with. Uh, bi-weekly meetings with my therapist uh, so I still have a, a sounding board and and I still have a way to stay grounded and be introspective uh, it, it's kind of funny uh, a while ago my wife and I were talking about you know should we move to Hawaii when we retire because that's our favorite place to vacation and I always told her if I move to Hawaii Number one, I'm going to go back to AA. Number two, we're going to volunteer at the Humane Society. And number three, we're going to find one other community activity to do. And so if I was in a new world and a new environment, uh, I'd go back to AA meetings for the camaraderie and the support. Uh, I don't think there's a chance uh, at this stage of my life where I feel like I'm white-knuckling it or fighting sobriety but I would go back there just to get involved in the group and the community since I would be in a new area and a new group of people. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for it. It's not impossible that I would be involved in it again for the reasons I just stated, uh, but I don't go to regular meetings at this stage of my life. Gotcha. 
Do you have any, like, uh, a daily practice or anything like that that you adhere to that helps you kind of stay focused on the things you want to accomplish? I mean, what is a day like for you that helps you, you know, achieve the goals you set out for yourself? Well, I, I keep a schedule. And uh, I get up at a very similar time. I work out three days a week. I have a trainer. Um, I have very clear and concise business goals. Um, I work X amount of hours. I spend X amount of the hours I work. I mean, it's, it's very precision. And one of the things that we've all heard but I can speak to is that if you get into habits and your lifestyle becomes consistent and repetitive, it produces more happiness slash serenity. And so I'm a very scheduled person. I know what I'm doing. I know when I'm going to do it. I know how many hours I'm going to work. I know how much vacation I'm going to take. And, it, and in terms of it giving you a sense of accomplishment, it works. And so I really do keep a schedule. And what my support person and I decide on Monday mornings I'm going to do during the week, at this stage, by sometime on Saturday, all the work's done. I, I don't leave work on Saturday till everything we talked about on Monday is completed. And I've been doing that for years and years, and it just happens. It's just I don't ever feel like, oh, no, I should have done that. No, if I said I was going to do it, I'm going to do it. Now, that took a long time to get developed as a consistent way of working or a habit, if you will. Uh, but, boy, it gives you just a lot of peace to know if I say I'm going to call you, I'm going to call you. I would imagine that, like you said, that creates a lot of serenity for you. There's not that much turmoil in your life. If there isn't. pretty predictable. There, there isn't. Do you have any you know, after 43 years of sobriety, do you have any triggers or anything that would occasionally, you know, make the thought pop into your mind? No. Really? No, I've dealt with anxiety, depression, and anger. Those have been the mental health problems that I've had to combat during sobriety. But as I suggested earlier, I had so much success with my life getting better being sober that, that it I built on that. And and haven't had a lot tugging at me to go back. Uh, I like my life. That's beautiful. Tell us a little bit about, you know, where that, ang you know, again, I've read the book, and I when you talk about growing up in an alcoholic household, um, you know, we have a pretty good idea of where this anger comes from. But <laughs> tell us about, you know, kind of how you learn to deal with that. You know, the therapy's been important, but it's an interesting saga in that I'd been sober for a period of time when my dad passed away. And I thought we were on good terms at the end of his life. Um, I thought I had forgiven him. We were with each other when he passed. And I thought I would be able to move on from that. But I had behavior characteristics such as road rage and, and things like that, that that stuck with me for a long time. And really what had happened was, you know, when, when I'd get in an argument with somebody on Highway 60, 169 and beat them up, uh, it, it really wasn't that person. I was still angry. 
and had not got to the bottom of my feelings toward my dad and I really had to work on that in therapy to finally put that behind me and uh, uh, you know once again it's a word we've used a bunch of time it just produced another level of serenity in my life where now if somebody gives me the finger I giggle and keep driving I don't I don't care I'm not I'm not going to go roll around in the dirt anymore and that took me a lot of years to get to that place so I'd been sober for a long time when I was still stupid and uh, sobriety in and of itself won't solve all your problems but you won't be solving any problems until you deal with the sobriety that makes a lot of sense <laughs> the problems are all going to be there the underlying issues so uh, you know the the cup you know i guess the the relapse that i had not too long ago it became pretty evident pretty quickly that you know hey dummy this doesn't fix anything <laughs> you know what i mean so it it was uh you know kind of tightening back up and getting refocused um it hasn't even crossed my mind again for a second you know i mean right. things are so much better uh and and actually um you know I, you and i talked once before this podcast to kind of prep for this a little bit to just kind of get a little bit more background and something that really came into my mind that was really beneficial for me after that meeting um that i just this clarity came to me was that when i um what i held on to for a long time because i haven't drank for almost five years but then i just switched the alcoholic tendency in my brain over to smoking pot and I tried to romanticize it in my mind or I tried to, you know, convince myself that, you know, kind of get this evangelical approach about how are these drunks going to tell me that smoking pot is a bad thing when they all, you know, feel like hell on a Saturday morning and I'm going out for a 10 mile run and blah, 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 you know, kind of this holier than thou attitude about it. And, um, you know, weed should be legal everywhere. It's medicine. And how are you going to, you know, how can alcohol be illegal and this is legal and or, you know, vice versa. But anyways, the point being what I, it just really like popped in front of my face was I, I lose all self-respect, you know, respect for myself when I choose to get high to deal with my problems. It just, I don't, I, I probably knew that before, of course, but it just, it was so glaring, just like, you know, when, when I'm totally sober and in the proper mindset, you know, okay, yeah, go sell a bunch of houses or go, you know, whatever. There's, there's certainly goals and things that I, that, that make me excited and I have an amazing family and those things. But the reality is if I choose to even it, it getting high just turns me, it means that I have to start lying. It means I have to start being sneaky and it's just all self-respect is gone in just a heartbeat, you know? And so when that became clear to me, I mean, of course I have to keep it up and keep going but it just it, it was like you don't have to try to convince yourself anymore that you're missing out on something great because you're not really missing out on anything great because no. you know that you do not respect yourself not only aren't you missing out on something great you're choosing not to do something dumb which is even more rewarding eventually and so the insight that you just described is the kind of things that happen uh, when you put some effort into thinking and feeling 
And uh, if, if you can remember that feeling, you'll have an easier time with sobriety. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I've known so many different people uh, who've had so many different approaches to addiction because we're all different. Our life experiences are all different. You know, what one person did has nothing to do with what another person did. But you had a tremendous learning experience and something changed in you uh, that second time when you had that, that relapse. And, and I was talking to you about the guy that went to treatment 20 times. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did the last time work? Mm-hmm. Well, I can't answer that. Or but who knows if it even was that that made it work? Who knows? You know, or that but made it but there is something inside us where you go, okay, I'm getting a little smarter. I get a little bit. And, and so you had a tremendous learning experience. Congratulations. That's cool. Thank you. Um, there's another quote in here I wanted to ask you about, and, and it's, it's on the same topic, which is why, it, again, it really resonated for me. Um, the subject matter in the, in the chapter of the book, it's on page 15, you're talking about commitment. And the, the subject is commitment matters. And you say, as long as you refuse to fully commit to something, you can kid yourself that you could do better if you wanted to, but you only half try. Um, that really resonated for me. I want to hear kind of your thoughts about it. And for me, I, I'm not going to necessarily get into the, the inner dialogue that I have about my, myself and my own situation with where I'm at in my career compared to should I want to go way bigger, should I want, you know, but I have this, this dialogue that I've been telling myself for a long time, and that was another one that was just kind of like a slap in the face that was like, you know, I sit and tell myself I could I could hit these bigger metrics or these bigger numbers if I wanted to, but I like my position right now, and it, it might be tricking myself about something. But well, I think there is a degree of honesty that we all have to have, and I think the clearer your mind is and the happier you are, it's slightly easier to decide how much you want to push yourself in business. That quote came out of an unusual experience. So when I was in drug and alcohol treatment, I had an assigned counselor in the treatment center. It was Dr. Carl Becker. Interesting guy. A little bit of a German accent, ex-Catholic priest, Hmm. working in a Ramsey County treatment center. And... uh, one day he was talking with me and he goes, you know, you are one of the most amazing losers I have ever seen in my life. Your life was so exciting. You did the craziest things. Nobody could tell you what to do. Whatever you wanted, you did. Whatever you needed, you took. You just didn't care about anybody or anything. But the one thing you are, you've always been afraid to find out how good you could be. You're never willing to stick your neck out. You're never willing to stick with anything, whether it was school, sports, relationships. Uh, You always reverted to being Mr. Cool or Mr. Tough Guy, and uh, you're afraid to find out how good good you are. So deep down inside, John, you're a coward. And uh, you could have hit me with a two-by-four because he's right. Hmm. I never wanted to find out if I could go to college or get straight A's or run fast, or I, I, I was a loser. And I was afraid to find out how good I could be. 
I wouldn't challenge myself. I wouldn't compete. And I decided he was right, and I wanted to find out how good I could be at life. It clearly must have been pretty influential, as you know. Very much so. Own a brokerage with, what, a thousand associates? You Every have bit of that, yeah. yeah. And so, but as, as important as the mortgage company, the title company, all that other stuff is, that's cool. That's as a result of staying focused and moving forward. But how I feel about myself and my wife and my family is more important. And, and that gets better every year. And that's only because I'm getting better every year in terms of understanding who John is and what John wants because you got to take care of yourself first. That's one of the things I've written in many different ways from coaching real estate to personal growth is number one, you got to take care of yourself. Number two, you got to take care of your spouse. Number three, you got to take care of your family. Number four, you got to take care of your soul. Number five, you take care of work. Number six, you take care of family. Number seven, you take care of friends. But you've got to take care of yourself first in order that you can impact all those other situations and lives. And uh, that's a core philosophy in, in terms of how I teach and how I believe. Hmm. What else do you want to talk about, sir? Oh, my goodness. I, I, I'm so overwhelmed that we're even doing this. You've asked such tremendous questions. I don't know that there's much more I could add unless there's something else you'd like me to share. Well... Um, you know, we, we could talk for days about real estate stuff. I, I mean, I think the, a big uh, focus of the podcast for me is I know it helps me to stay sober, but what I really want to do is I want to talk to be, to talk to people who are in recovery and are achieving on a very high level. What is it that they, uh, you know, did they take something about their addictive tendencies and really you know, flip those and, and find a way to, um, to drive them into, you know, higher levels of success. And because um, there's nothing against anyone who, I mean, if someone is living a sober life, that is a, that's a successful life. If they've battled addiction and, and they've, you know, had those demons that they couldn't tame, if, if they're able to get sober and just be sober every day and get by, that's a success. But that's why I find it so fascinating to see people who have not only achieved sobriety, but then are achieving results in a variety of different areas on a really high level. Well, I, I think it's up to the individual to decide what path they want. And so if, if your path is to lead a very simple life, uh, I've said this many other times in, in different speeches where, you know, if my cat and I had a one-bedroom condo, <laughs> uh, I'm just as happy as I am in the house I live in because it's me and a cat. And so uh, I'm just as happy. And so if I didn't have the business and the other trappings of success, I'm still going to be happy. I would be aspiring to do something. I would want to give back, connect, touch. So... That, I think, to me, is the most important thing. You know, the very reason 
I could I could turn this around and say to you, why are you doing this podcast? Don't you have anything better to do? <laughs> well, you're doing this podcast because you hope it'll reach somebody. You hope it'll touch somebody. And so, yeah, you got to go sell a house because we got to make some money. Mm-hmm. But we also have to give back and touch. And so I could be in a wide variety of, of socioeconomic levels uh, but if, if, you know, I was working down at Salvation Army helping people, I, I think I'd still have a high degree of satisfaction. If I was, you know, rescuing animals at the Humane Society, I, I, I'd be fine. It would be me that I have to be aware of, and so I have this vehicle called the real estate brokerage and the other real estate companies related to the brokerage, and that gives me a chance to give back, to help people, create an environment for everybody to make an above average income. There's so many powerful things I do. And then we channel most of the profits nowadays into our charity, the Results Foundation, which is going to be a bigger part of my life as I get older. And so that's just my vehicle. And I'm just lucky to have it. But I don't mind working. I don't mind tackling things. I don't mind writing down a list of things to do this week and then do them. And, and that'll make the bill, the business better, and, and the business being better makes me happy, but it also gives me more options in life. I, I want to have options. Um, when, when I give back, I get way more, and we all know that term, the more you give, the better you feel, and, and I just think there's so much more we all can do about touching people, helping people, being kind to people. If you've ever help somebody carry you know if you've seen an elderly person and if you've ever helped them carry their groceries to their car and put them in the trunk who feels better when you're done with that you or the lady who you put the groceries in their trunk Mm -hmm. i mean you just have a different sense of feeling and calmness and you got a little smile on your face and all you do is put some groceries in the trunk for somebody. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like to create those feelings and, and I like to have a work environment where other people can feel those things. And uh, it's very meaningful to me. And, and once again, it doesn't make any difference what your stature is relative to job performance or socioeconomics. If you're giving back and touching people, you will get that. And if you have clarification on what you want, it'll be easier to achieve. But not everybody's going to have that clarification or that desire to do XXXX financially, and that's not a problem. But if you do, clear head's going to make it easier to get. And so I was just lucky. I had the desire to build a business. And some of that, when I say luck, everybody goes, oh, you weren't lucky. Yeah, I was. I had a great business partner. I was in the right place at the right time with a new brand, you know, there is some luck involved sure. in it. Now, if, if you don't work your butt off, there's the luck's meaningless, but, but there is some certain circumstances that are better, and I've been fortunate uh, in later years with those circumstances, and works out. Absolutely. I listen to plenty of you know podcasts and talks of you know very, very successful people, and they almost uniformly say that there's an element of luck, and you know, there has to be. But the harder you work, the luckier you get. And yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 you know, luck is winning the lottery. I haven't won any lottery. <laughs> I, I've had to earn all this. But there still have been things that have occurred that were timely and, and, and beneficial that uh, 
weren't as a result of effort, but as a result of the right place at the right time. Sure. Uh, this has been tremendous for me. Cool. Is there, uh, would you like to mention the book? Uh, the book is called The Reward of Knowing by John Colopy. Where can people get the book? Amazon. It's on Amazon. It it is uh, been classified as a bestseller and it's doing well. Hey, uh, congrats! And, uh, yeah, thank you. And and like I said, it's so meaningful to me when I get an email uh, from somebody or they post something on on my Facebook sites or anything about the book and and what it's done for them. So currently, it's a great great feeling of satisfaction all the profits from the book are going to the results foundation to help people so it's it's i don't need anything more i've got a nice house a nice wife and a nice cat i don't need any more than that right now and i have more cars than any person should have that's my only vice still uh but i'd love it if you'd uh, consider the book and if you read it uh, let me know what you think absolutely well, uh, anything else signing off? No, I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for the time. Me too. Much Thank appreciated. You. All right. Thanks so much for listening to Seizing Sobriety. If you found the conversation valuable or know anyone that might benefit from the ideas we discussed, please share on your favorite social media and be sure to subscribe and review us on iTunes. It helps tremendously, and I sincerely appreciate your support. Take care.